Okay, well, we're carrying on this morning in our study through the book of Revelation. Incredible book that just reveals the things that are yet to happen. In fact, as we said already, the book of Revelation is divided up into these three parts. The introduction, which really John is just describing that which he's seeing at that particular moment. Then we have the, the church revealed. These seven letters to seven churches that really we've seen also that they they were applicable to seven real churches that existed in that time, but they also lay out the history of the Christian church from the first century up until the time of the tribulation, which is what we've been focusing on, which really starts from chapter 6 in the book of Revelation. Chapter 4 and 5 we have that theme or that scene of the, the throne room in heaven. And then we get into the tribulation. Now, I just want to just give us a little bit of a, a running start into chapter 13, because that's where we're going to be this morning. We're going to see these uh, two great protagonists of the devil introduced. Um, you may have heard these these names, these titles before, and there's so much that's uh, written, there's so much in fiction and in uh, a lot of films use these themes. But we have, first of all, in verse 1, we'll see the beast from the sea that is introduced. Now, you and I will typically refer to him as Antichrist. There's actually, probably, of all the titles given to him, it's one of the most, possibly least descriptive. Antichrist just simply means in the place of Christ. It doesn't mean against Christ, per se. But there's actually about, uh, I think, 33 titles in the Old Testament of this character and 13 in the New. But we're also going to see another... Beast, as John sees in his vision, referred to as the beast from the earth, that's in verse 11. Now typically we give this character the name of the false prophet. So we're going to be looking at these two individuals in our study this morning. Now this is actually completing a list of seven persons that have been revealed to this point. It's interesting in the book of Revelation there is so much structure based around sevens. Of course we have the, the seven letters to the seven churches, we've had the seven seals, we then had the seven trumpets, and there was the seven thunders, and then the seven bowls of wrath, and so on. And every time we seem to get a sixth, and a parenthesis, and then the seventh. And we've had, on the blowing of the seventh trumpet, these seven individuals, or seven persons, in a sense, that have been revealed. We've got the woman that was revealed in chapter 12, the man-child, and then Michael, the dragon, the saints, if you could class them as a group or an entity in their own right. And now we have the sixth and seventh, the, the beast from the sea, and then the beast from the land. So again, everything uh, broken up into sevens. Just to give you a, an idea again, sometimes it helps to see these things visually. Looking at the whole span of the tribulation, uh, a number of passages, and we've looked at a lot of these already, tell us that we've got this seven-year period of time that is yet to come. And it's divided into two halves, and Jesus himself gives us a distinction, referring to the first part as the beginning of sorrows, and then the second three-and-a-half-year period as the great tribulation. Now, the church is taken out before this time for the simple reason that if you are a Christian, you were judged at the cross. Your sin was paid for at the cross. And so there is no need for you to go through this time of judgment because, again, the Bible makes it very clear that the tribulation is a time of judgment on this earth. A lot of people, you know, why doesn't God do something to all these atrocities and so on? Well, God is going to do something. But God is patient, God is long-suffering, not willing that any should perish, we're told. Peter tells us that. So God has given everybody an opportunity. And of course, if God had acted in wrath at things previously, you and I may not have been saved. So God's grace and patience in waiting has allowed so many people to come to know him. And so God is giving people the opportunity to repent. And we've said already, these beginning of sorrows, we start to see the, the, the seals are broken, just as Jesus spoke about in Matthew 24. There's the famines and the earthquakes and the pestilences and wars and so on and rumors of wars. And all that occurs during this time. And as the, the trumpets are blown, so on succeeding judgments come out, but they're always in measure. It's a third of the grass, a third of the trees, a third of the ships in the ocean and so on. God is bringing judgment, but he's doing it in a way that is allowing people to realize and repent. During this period of time as well, we've also seen that these two characters are going to witness in Jerusalem for three and a half years. The world is going to get really, really wound up by them. I mean, I don't know whether you ever tried speaking to people about Jesus, but I found most of the time people get wound up pretty quickly. I think it's one of the greatest evidences that that which we believe is true, because I could talk to somebody for half an hour about the Easter Bunny and they don't get very emotive. 
But the moment I talk about Jesus Christ, people start to get twitchy. People don't like it. People want me to stop. Why? If, if this is all just mythology, if, you know, no, no, it's because it's true. And because there's something within everybody that when you start talking about Jesus, Jesus is our creator. And I think deep down people know, the Bible speaks about our, our conscience bearing witness. And I think people do know deep down that there is a God, even though they choose to ignore and reject. So they're going to get wound up by these witnesses who are speaking about God and his mercy and speaking about Jesus. And so they're going to get put to death. But three and a half days later, these individuals are going to rise up. Uh, they're going to be resurrected and they're going to be caught up to the throne in heaven. During that time also, and probably as a result of their work, we're going to see 144,000 Jews, and they're very clearly identified. We've got 12,000 Jews from each tribe of Israel who are going to go around the world seemingly preaching the gospel. That partly is conjecture because we're not specifically told what they do. But it does seem to be, most commentators feel, that will be their role during that time. And of course, through all of this, we're going to end up with a number of people that will come to know the Lord. There will be, the Bible refers to them in a couple of situations that we'll see even this morning as saints. You know, not every saint is a member of the church. And simply to be a saint is the follower of Jesus Christ, somebody who is set apart, sanctified. That's all a saint is. The Catholic Church has made (laughs) far more of that. The seven thunders, John is told not to record them. So that's kind of, we'll have to wait till we get there. Don't know why. Maybe it was something that would have been just a little bit too much for us to take. I don't know. But then we're going to get shortly onto the seven vials, these final judgments. And at this point, God's wrath is poured out and it's unrestrained. Now the interesting thing is, I think there's a kind of cutoff at this point. Because just before these seven vials are poured out, we find that the last of the believers are taken out of the world. During this period of time, this last part here, and I don't know, I'm, I have no idea what length of that last three and a half year period, it could be three years of the three and a half, or two years, I don't know. But during that last part, certainly, there is no mercy shown. And actually, as we, we look in chapter 14, we'll see, God makes it very, very clear um, that his wrath is being poured out in its fullness. And there's even a, an angel that kind of seems to interrupt the text to remind us that God is just in doing this. You know, because of every baby that's been aborted, of every person that's been stabbed or murdered, everybody that's been brought into addiction with alcohol or drugs or pornography or whatever else, the world is a very twisted place. God will bring judgment on this world. And that's when we see it really fully being poured out during that period of time. So, chapter 6 to 10, just to give you a rough breakdown of where the chapters cover, what we've gone through already, really deal with this first period of time, this first three and a half years. Chapter 11 kind of backtracks and then goes over that same period again. Chapter 12 also covering that same period of time. And now we're into chapter 13, and we're going to see things being dealt with now that occur in this right in this middle period. So just leading up to now the Great Tribulation. So that's kind of chronologically where we are. Well, we saw last time in our study in chapter 12 that Satan is a deceiver and a master counterfeiter, and possibly no more clearly seen than in this chapter, because we're going to find that Satan now, at this kind of midpoint of the Tribulation, is going to attempt to establish, if you like, a satanic, unholy trinity. Satan being, of course, in that role like God. Remember what he said in Isaiah, that he wanted to be like God. Well, now he's going to really try and take on that mantle. Antichrist, again, in the place of Christ. And then this individual, this false prophet, assuming a Holy Spirit-like role. The role of the Holy Spirit is to point people to Jesus. And that's exactly what the false prophet is going to do in regard to Antichrist. He's going to point people and get people to worship Antichrist. Of course, Satan, at this point, is now going to seek to be worshipped by the whole world. And that's exactly what we're going to see. As we start to see this, uh, we're talking a short while about the other religions and how they kind of end up in this situation. But the final world religion will effectively be the Satan worship. And that doesn't, uh, sometimes we think of that being a very sinister, occultic type of thing. Uh, it may well be far more subtle than that. You see, Satan is equally happy with those who foolishly play with things like, you know, the occult, Ouija boards, tarot cards, horoscopes, yoga, other Eastern mysticism, which, you know, every position in yoga is a prayer or worship to a false deity. 
and other things that come from Eastern mysticism and other religions. You know, so Satan's very happy if, if you get into those things, or if you're just into materialism, thinking that you can just live your life how you want to, following your own plan for your life. And of course our own human nature, the Bible says that we are sinful, that there is nothing good within us. It's kind of not something we want to hear, but that's what the Bible tells us. You know, the world, of course, has got that if it feels good, do it mentality. But of course, there are consequences. See, Satan's desire to be worshipped is actually seen in probably the most audacious act ever witnessed in the whole of eternity. We read about it in Luke's Gospel, chapter 4. You remember the account that Jesus is led of the Holy Spirit into the wilderness? And we read this. And the devil comes to tempt him. And it says, And the devil, taking him up into a high mountain, showed unto him all the kingdoms of the world in a moment of time. And the devil said unto him, All this power will I give thee, and the glory of them, for that is delivered unto me, and to whomsoever I will give it. If thou will worship me, all shall be thine. I mean, this is incredible. Here we've got a created angel asking the creator to worship him. I mean, it really is. It's just, just beggar's belief. I mean, talk about delusions of grandeur, but really this is just a, uh, it's incredible. But the thing to, to note, first of all, is that all the kingdoms of the world are being shown and laid out here. And notice that Satan says it's been delivered to him. And that's a statement of fact. Jesus doesn't challenge that. We've said already that for now, Satan is the god of this world. The, the world has been given over to Satan. And what we've been seeing going on during Revelation is Jesus claiming back that which Adam lost. It was given to Adam. Satan stole it, and for now it's Satan's. It has been delivered him, and obviously to whosoever he wants to give it. But Jesus ultimately will come and claim back what was rightfully Adam's. Now, to get a bit of a perspective before we move into Revelation chapter 13, it would be helpful just to go back and have a look at a few things in the book of Daniel. Daniel and Revelation are two books that are probably best studied kind of almost side by side. There's so many ideas that that go from one into the other. We'll just have a look at a few things that come out of the book of Daniel. Now, you may recall in Daniel chapter 2, let me just give you a very quick background. Back in 606 BC, the Babylonian Empire is rising and Nebuchadnezzar, Nebuchadnezzar's dad, dies. And so Nebuchadnezzar, out on missions at the point, finds himself the king. And he comes to Jerusalem. They've already defeated Egypt and Assyria, as their powers waned as well. And so Nebuchadnezzar comes against Jerusalem and he lays siege to Jerusalem. And in 606 takes some of the, the brightest and the best of Jerusalem, back to Babylon. Daniel is amongst them, just a very young man, possibly about 14 years old, and some of his friends are taken as well. And they get fed at the king's table, in a sense, the king's expense. And uh, we, we read the account of all those things in chapter 1 of Daniel. One of the incredible things is that Daniel says, we read of Daniel, that he purposed in his heart not to be defiled. You know, it would be like a young person today going away to university. Suddenly there's no accountability, and mum and dad aren't there. You can do what you want, and of course many people do just that. But Daniel decided, no, I don't want to live that way. I want to live for the God that I know. You see, Daniel's name also has the name of God in it. The El part is uh, from Elohim, God's name. God is my judge is what his name means. And his parents clearly have been godly parents and instilled in him some real truth. Daniel gets there anyway, and they find out there's this problem because the king's had a dream and he can't remember it, or at least he says he can't remember it. There's a debate as to whether he just pretended or whether he genuinely had forgotten the dream, but it had troubled him. So he asks, of course, for the wise men, for the magi, um, and for the Chaldeans, and all the sorcerers and everybody to come and see if they could tell him what the dream was. And they all kind of step forward, and it's quite a comical account, really, because uh, we get one group that step forward, uh, steps forward, first of all, uh, the Chaldeans, and they're kind of like, uh, these the, the rival groups, the Chaldeans were for Bab- Babylon, and the Magi were from Persia, and they both end up serving, and they're kind of competing with each other, and Chaldeans kind of say, well, we'll go first, because we, we want the credit, and they say, tell us, O king, what was your dream? And he says, I can't remember, you tell me. And now they kind of wish they'd let the Magi go first. And so, they're all in this predicament, they can't answer, and so the king says, right, I'm going to kill all of you then. 
And so as they're about to kill all of these wise men, of which Daniel and his crew are part, Daniel steps forward and says, hang on a minute, what's the problem? And so Arioch, the king's aide, says, well, this is what's happened. And Daniel says, well, let me go and speak to him. So Daniel goes back to his friends and says, hey guys, I had a great idea. Uh, we're going to go and tell the king the meaning of his dream. So shall we be praying and asking God? Because clearly at that point he didn't know. They go then and Daniel goes and speaks to the king. And we read this, verse 26 of Daniel chapter 2. The king answered and said to Daniel, whose name was Belteshazzar, Art thou able to make known unto me the dream which I have seen and the interpretation thereof? Daniel answered in the presence of the king and said, The secret which the king has demanded, cannot the wise men, that's by the way the magi, that's the word, and the astrologers and the magicians and the soothsayers show unto the king? He says, they can't show you. He says, but there is a God in heaven that reveals secrets and makes known to the king Nebuchadnezzar what shall be in the latter days. The dream and the visions of thy head upon thy bed are these. As for thee, O king, thy thoughts came into thy mind upon thy bed and what should come to pass hereafter? And he that reveals secrets makes known to thee what shall come to pass. And then we have the vision explained. Now, the dream that Nebuchadnezzar dream was of this statue made up of these component parts, the head being of gold, the chest and arms of silver, the belly and thighs of brass, the legs of iron, and then the toes mixed, some iron, some clay. So that's the, the dream that we have. Now the first part, Daniel explains, you're the head of gold, O king, and of course Nebuchadnezzar is quite happy with that part. An incredible kingdom, the kingdom of Babylon, and we have... The, uh, the Hanging Gardens of Babylon is one of those kind of ancient wonders of the world. They used to have chariot races around the top of the walls. They were so thick and so wide. It was just this incredible, beautiful city beyond anything that probably we can kind of get our heads around today. But the next empire that followed on, and this is what Daniel explained to the king was the vision and the dream he'd seen, would be this empire which we do know to be Persia. It was actually the Medo-Persian Empire. And Persia, of course, the, the dominant part of that. The chest and arms of the silver, not quite as grand as the Empire of Babylon, although covered a large geographical area. And then we had the Kingdom of Greece under Alexander the Great. And Alexander's kingdom, again, just with lightning speed, just covered the empire that they ended up dominating, including Egypt and across, uh, attempting to get into India as well. But all of this area of the Middle East... Greece conquered. But then there would come this other empire, fearsome empire, the empire of Rome, which devoured everything. And this is exactly what the vision indicated. But then in the latter days of that empire, there'd be this other kingdom, a kingdom of iron and clay. And a lot of Bible commentators refer to this as a revised or revived either Roman empire. Something that is yet to come. Let's just read on a little bit further. So in chapter 2, verse 37, we pick up, it says, And whereas thou saw the feet and the toes, part of potter's clay and part of iron, the kingdom shall be divided. They're speaking of this kingdom that is going to come. But there shall be in it the strength of the iron, for as much as thou sawest the iron mixed with miry clay, and the toes of the feet were part iron and part clay. So the kingdom shall be partly strong and partly broken. And this is the kingdom, by the way, that we're going to be looking at in a minute Detailed for us a little bit more in Revelation 13. But then we read, back in Daniel still, verse 44 of chapter 2. And in the days of these kings, shall the God of heaven set up a kingdom which shall never be destroyed. And the kingdom shall be not left to other people, but it shall break in pieces and consume all these kingdoms, and it shall stand forever. So that's kind of the conclusion of all of this. Now, in Daniel chapter 7, we find that Daniel himself has a dream and he's given the interpretation of the dream. So a lot of things we don't have to guess what it means because we've, we've got the information. It's given to us in, a, in the text. And picking up verse 23, we read, speaking of this fourth kingdom, okay, which we've seen already, spoke of Rome. The fourth beast shall be the fourth kingdom upon the earth, which shall be diverse from all kingdoms and shall devour the whole earth and shall tread it down and break it in pieces. Okay, And now we're going to get to, this is the revised part of this kingdom. And the ten horns out of this kingdom are ten kings. Now note that already, because sometimes we have these ideas in, in Revelation, and remember back in chapter 1, God said that this revelation was to be given in signs. So 
A sign points to something. A horn has this idiomatic idea of strength attached to it. So being used for kings is obviously quite logical. So these ten horns out of this kingdom are ten kings. We're told exactly what it means. That shall arise, and another shall arise after them, and he shall be diverse from the first, and shall subdue three kings. So it's speaking of something that is yet to come, where there will be a, a ten kingdom confederacy of some description, but then another individual is going to arise and subdue three of those kings. So as I said, horns typically symbolize strength, which is why they're used. And out of this old Roman Empire is going to come a ten-kingdom world empire. It's interesting that the Roman Empire was never conquered. The Roman Empire kind of just dissipated. The um, eastern leg of the Roman Empire survived the western leg by quite a few hundred years. But interestingly enough, every part of the Roman Empire has kind of taken its turn in ruling the world. The French, the Spanish, the British, and so on. Three of those kings that are yet to come seem to be fall before this individual again who we refer to as Antichrist. That uh, idea also is used in Revelation 17, and we'll explore that more when we get there. But it says, the ten horns, and he goes on and says, are ten kings, which have received no kingdom as yet, but receive power as kings, one hour with the beast. These have one mind, and shall give their power and strength unto the beast. And we've already seen these ideas used. Let's jump straight into the text of chapter 13. Start to understand. So, first thing, and I stood. Now, I just want to just mention a moment, because some translations will have the first part of this, and I stood upon the sand of the sea, as the last part of the previous chapter. Now, it's not a problem. The chapter breaks weren't put in by God. These were put in by Archbishop Stephen Langton in about the 12th century. Now they're very helpful for us. But if you've got a Bible and it shows that that verse is at the end of chapter 12, don't worry, it's not a problem. And the only other question is, some people think, therefore, that it, rather than translated I, it should be translated he, and it should be a reference to the dragon. Now the dragon, if you remember, back in chapter 12 was shown to be Satan who was cast out of heaven to the earth. And so some think that it was Satan who was then standing on the sea, or on the sand rather, by the, by the sea, or the seashore. The way the King James translates it, and some think this is the right way of understanding it, and it's, it's very hard to understand or to tell exactly what which way it should be from the Greek, and really it makes no real difference. Um, but some think, it's, as it's translated here, that it's John that is seeing this, and he's now placed in this position of standing on the sea, so again, your two options. Either it's John that's transported in his vision to the earth and he sees this incredible sight, a reference to the sand of the sea, simply alluding to the kind of reality as John's standing there. You know, if you've ever been to the beach and you stood there on a sandy beach and you know, you've got the, the water washing over your feet and just the idea that John's standing there watching as something suddenly rises out of the sea. It's very dramatic and I think that's possibly the, the idea that's being conveyed here. The other option, and either one, uh, is that it's the dragon who's been cast out of heaven who's now orchestrating these events. But either way, not really that important in the scheme of things, but I just mention it in case in your translation it says slightly differently or words it differently. And I stood upon the sand of the sea and saw a beast rise up out of the sea having seven heads and ten horns. Well, okay, we've already seen our ten horns, so we're kind of up with that already. We know we're talking about ten kingdoms and upon his horns ten crowns. Well, that makes sense, of course. And upon his heads the name of blasphemy. The sea in scripture is almost always used as a reference to the Gentile nations. Now, very often it had, in, from an Israel point of view, it was looking at the Mediterranean Sea. It's not specific about which one, it doesn't really matter. Um, the idea is that we're just seeing a great sea here. But the suggestion is that this beast is coming from out of the Gentile nations. The seven heads we're going to see explained to us are actually seven world kingdoms, and we'll look at that in just a second. The ten horns, as we've already mentioned, are the ten kings who will rule under Antichrist. Now, in Revelation 17, we're given more information about those seven heads. We're told at the time that John is writing that five of them have been and gone. One of them currently is, and another is yet to come. Now, as we look back down the corridor of time and then also forward, the first real world kingdom was the kingdom of Egypt, ruling the, the known world at that time. That was then followed by the kingdom of Assyria. When Assyria fell in about 612 BC, Babylon came to the fore. 
And then that was conquered by Medo-Persia, which then also conquered by Greece. And Greece was finally conquered by Rome. And Rome, of course, was the kingdom in power in the day that John is receiving this revelation. But this other world kingdom that is to come will be this confederacy of ten kings. And it's interesting, there are groups that have already, from an economic perspective, divided the world up into ten regions. And people think, maybe that will be the ten kings. Or some other confederacy that's put together. And that's why, whilst we don't know which way is right or wrong necessarily, this whole situation with this vote about Europe is interesting. Because this all could play into this scenario somehow. And as I say, I don't know... There was lots of uh, speculation when the European Union was growing and it got to nine member states and people started looking at the Bible and saying, oh look, we get to ten and we're there. And then it went up to eleven, then twelve and thirteen and then it's carried on growing. And so, you know, we don't know. But a lot of these things we'll start to see unfold in the days ahead of us. Notice also that this beast... As the point is, has the names of blasphemy. In the Greek, it's plural there. Uh, this is implying that these kingdoms, because it's the heads representing the world kingdoms, have all been blasphemous in some way. And I think quite simply, they've all claimed a title that belonged to Jesus Christ alone. And, of course, in many other ways, they've blasphemed God. Blasphemy in Scripture simply, simply signifies speaking impious things in regard to God or using a name in an improper way. Romans 13 reminds us in verse 1, Let every soul be subject unto the higher powers, it's speaking of governments and so on, for there is no power but of God, but the powers that are ordained of God. You see, God is the one who gives these nations authority. And so it's kind of quite audacious on their part that so many of them would reject God. Jesus, who in John 19:11 answered, he says, "Thou could have no power at all except, oh, sorry, against me, except it were given to thee from above." Now speaking to Pilate, he says, "Pilate, your kingdom only exists because God has allowed it." So these kingdoms, these ten kings, full of blasphemy. Verse two says, "And the beast which I saw." was like unto a leopard. Now, we haven't gone into Daniel in detail, but in Daniel you'll find that Greece is described uh, in various ways, and the leopard is an idea that seemed to use to describe Greece, partly because of its speed, the lightning speed that it has. Its feet were as the feet of a bear. Well, a bear is used to describe Medo-Persia, because of its kind of lumbering strength and so on. Its mouth, the mouth of a lion, seemingly suggestive of the kingdom of Babylon. Now, again, looking that's the other way, looking back you know, uh, chronologically, starting with the younger and going back to the older of the empires. But the idea seems to be that this final world empire that's going to come is going to be an amalgamation of all of these things. The beast which I saw was like a leopard, and his feet were as the feet of a bear, his mouth as the mouth of a lion, and the dragon, we've had that identified in the previous chapter as being Satan himself, gave him his power and his seat and great authority. Just note here, he gave him. So although we're talking about a world kingdom, there seems to be an individual implied here who's going to be the one heading it up. So again, just an amalgamation of all the previous empires, all the idolatry and excesses and so on. And Satan seemingly giving his own power to this individual. Now, I'm not going to go through all of these and read them all and go into them in detail, but 33 names in the Old Testament of the one that we refer to as Antichrist. These are there, they'll be in the notes and so on. Lots of these things. Some of them you may have heard before, but a lot of them... Just subtle references in the Old Testament to this character we refer to as Antichrist. One of the titles I prefer of this individual is the man of sin. Uh, because I think that's... Uh, they're the Old Testament ones you've just seen flicking up there. These ones, there's 13 titles in the New Testament that are given. Antichrist is one that most people tend to use. And so on. Uh, the man of sin actually comes from Second Thessalonians chapter 2. Um, but all of these uh, names used to try and give a little bit more description about this character. 
Interestingly, just to tell you a little bit about him from what we know in the Bible, he's going to be an intellectual genius in terms of his manipulation and so on, uh, an oratorical genius because of the way he speaks and leads and deceives people, a political genius because of the way he's going to manipulate these governments and so on, a commercial genius, he's going to have incredible control over trade and ultimately buying and selling, we'll see that in a moment. A military genius because he's going to lead this incredible army against Israel to try and destroy them. A governmental genius again because of his authority that he exerts over these other kings. And he's also going to be a religious genius because he's going to be in some part responsible for bringing all religions together. And interestingly, just to mention there, in Second Thessalonians chapter 4, we're told that this individual will be worshipped above all that is called God. Well, we can understand that in terms of that which we refer to as God, the God of Abraham, Isaac and Jacob and so on. But that also means any other gods. That means that this individual we worshipped above Allah. Now, that's an interesting thing because it means that there's got to be a, a significant paradigm shift from the way the world is at the moment and particularly with Islam. How will it be that Islam will allow this individual to be worshipped? Well, I think it's interesting to look at what's going on in recent years with the rise of ISIS. Because working with the Muslims as I do, I've seen a real softening. They used to be quite hard and never want to talk about anything uh, to do with religion. They were absolutely right. I've seen a softening to the point that they they ask questions now and that they're willing to debate and discuss and they're far more open-minded. I think it's interesting that there is a change that's going on. Verse 3, we carry on. And I saw one of his heads as it were wounded to death, and his deadly wound was healed, and all the world wondered after the beast. Now, we've seen already that the heads represent the world empires, but clearly, as we've already noted, this individual seems to be the one who is at the forefront of this final head, this final world empire. So he's going to be the last and uh, principal ruler, world president or whatever title people will end up giving. It seems to be then, specifically in relation to this individual, that he suffers some sort of head wound that seems to, certainly in terms of the impression it's created, seems that he dies as a result of this. And then Satan is seemingly going to stage a resurrection. Now I think it will be a mock resurrection. I don't think that he'll have the power to rise from the dead because that's a power that belongs to God. Jesus has the the keys of death and hell. Jesus is the one who has power over the grave. Now, it might be that God will allow Satan to do that and in a sense it's kind of a mute point because whatever happens, the effect will be the same that the people of the world will think that this individual has been killed and then suddenly supernaturally brought back to life again. This is going to be one of the major signs, satanic signs, that is going to deceive the whole world into following the man of sin, following Antichrist. By the way, the, the Bible in Thessalonians speaks of great deception in the last days, that people would receive a lie. Because, you know, for us sitting here this morning, there's almost that, well, how could people be so foolish as to go along with all this? Well, I guarantee you that when these things happen, it will be so ordinary. It won't be kind of seen as these incredible supernatural things, of course the resurrection part here may be so, but a lot of what's going on, the way these empires will come to power and everything else, and these kings, it will just be a natural progression as far as the people on the earth are concerned. And we're told and they worshipped the dragon, again. So that means that this is going to herald a one world religion. All other religions of the earth are going to have to be put down. We'll look at that in more in detail in chapter 17 and 18, which really covers that. And they worship the dragon which gave power unto the beast, and they worship the beast, saying, Who is like unto the beast, and who is able to make war with him? Of course, the answer to that question is Jesus Christ, and he will, when he returns, to intervene on behalf of the nation of Israel. And that will be the primary reason that Jesus will return at the point that he does, and we'll read that in chapter 19. Verse 5 carries on, And there was given unto him a mouth speaking great things and blasphemies. Now that is far more than just a a casual comment because we'll see all the way through this. This individual is constantly speaking against the God of heaven. And we're told, And power was given unto him to continue 42 months. That's three and a half years. 
the same period of time. Um, this is used a number of times we've seen already, and again referring to the great tribulation, the last three and a half years of this seven year period. Verse 6, and he opened his mouth in blasphemy, there we go again, against God, to blaspheme his name and his tabernacle and them that dwell in heaven. The interesting thing here, and the number of times we see this in Revelation, there seems to be an understanding, not a denial of God, but an acknowledgement of God, and that possibly even that the saints had been taken to heaven. This is quite interesting because, of course, the world is going to have a major problem when suddenly millions of Christians just disappear. I mean, when the world wakes up and the news report on their radio is saying, suddenly and without warning, literally thousands, perhaps millions of people have just disappeared this morning. The world is going to be in total shock. They're going to have to try and explain it one way or another. And so this idea possibly will have been... Uh, when I say possibly, almost certainly, because of the things that have been written. I mean, you remember a year or two ago, a couple of years back now, even Hollywood made a retake of the Left Behind film. Might be a good one for us to, to get. I saw it a little while ago. It's not a, a Christian film as such, but it's very interesting. It's done from a worldly perspective of those that are left behind at the time of the rapture. It's very interesting, very thought-provoking. So, by the way, we will be dwelling in heaven at that time, so his comments will be aimed at us as well, not that it will have any effect or any problem or repercussions for us but verse 7 carries on and it was given unto him to make war with the saints and to overcome them a power was given him over all kindreds and tongues and nations now we've already just seen a reference to those that dwell in heaven so we've got a problem here because it's speaking here that this individual this antichrist this man of sin is going to be given power to make war with the saints well you should remember that in Matthew 16 18 Jesus said that I will build my church and the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. So it's very clear that this group that are referred to here in Revelation 12 verse 7, so Revelation 13 verse 7, that's incorrect reference on the slide. This group that are referred to here as the saints cannot be the church. Cannot be Israel either because Israel we saw in chapter 12 have fled to the wilderness. So who will this be? This will be those who have come to faith during the tribulation. And Satan is given power and authority over them. He says, and power was given him over all kindreds and tongues and nations. So although they're called saints, they're not part of the church, but they are those who have come to believe and put their trust in Jesus Christ. You know, a lot of people look at this and think, well, you know, in that case, maybe I'll wait before I make a decision. I'll wait till uh, all these things happen, then I'll know if it's true or not. Well, okay, but the trouble is, these individuals will all end up being martyred for their faith. So you've really got a choice. You either choose to live for Jesus now, or die for him then. Or, you'll end up on the other side, worshipping Antichrist. There isn't a, there isn't a middle ground. Daniel 7.25 talks about this as well, back in the book of Daniel. And he says, and he shall speak great words they have again. It's constant Attacking God. Great words against the Most High and shall wear out the saints of the Most High. Reference to these believers. And think to change times and laws. And they shall be given into his hand a time and times and a dividing of time. Three and a half years again. Times singular, times dual. And then dividing of time is half. So three and a half. So for those three and a half years, Satan is going to have this dominion. This rule over the planet Earth in its fullness with these kings and with Antichrist at the, the head of all of this. Carries on, he says, But the judgment shall sit and they shall take away his dominion to consume and to destroy it unto the end. And the kingdom and the dominion and the greatness of the kingdom under the whole heaven shall be given to the people of the saints of the Most High, whose kingdom is an everlasting kingdom and all dominion shall serve and obey him. Somebody I know recently, oh sorry, uh, a little while back now, I uh, was going to get a car sticker done. I don't know if she did it, but say, laugh now, but one day we're going to rule the world. Well, this is, this is your reference for it. Because this is what the Bible says. That those who belong to Jesus Christ, when Jesus sits on his throne, are going to be given authority. It's what the New Testament says as well. The New Testament speaks a lot about, just subtly, but a lot about things that will happen after Jesus has come back and established his kingdom and the roles and responsibilities given to those who have been faithful. Back into Revelation chapter 13, ignore that reference, it should be 13. Verse 8. 
And all that dwell upon the earth shall worship him, whose names are not written in the book of life, the book of the life of the Lamb from the, sorry, slain from the foundation of the world. If any man have an ear, let him hear. What, what's missing from verse 9? Seemingly. Well, that phrase we've seen so many times in the book of Revelation, in chapter 2 and 3 particularly, if any man have an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. That's the phrase. It's not there. It doesn't say what the Spirit says to the churches. Why? Because the church is no longer here. The church is gone. The church is now in heaven. This is now a cry to anybody to listen, to wake up and hear. Listen, look at verse 8 again. Verse 8, we read, And all that dwell upon the earth shall worship him whose names are not written in the book of life of the Lamb, slain from the foundation of the world. Now, there are a few scholars that think that this reference then is from the foundation of the world. That's the, referring to the names that are written from the foundation of the world. Others think that it's the Lamb slain from the foundation of the world. What does from the foundation of the world reference? Is it one or the other? Well, it's both. In Revelation 17 verse 8, we've got a reference there to whose names were not written in the book of life from the foundation of the world. So those who are saved, those who will spend eternity with God, your name is in the Lamb's book of life. In First Peter chapter 1 verses 19 and 20, it speaks there, but with the precious blood of Christ as a lamb without blemish, without spot, who verily was foreordained before the foundation of the world. So, in a sense, it's irrelevant, because Jesus was slain from before the foundation of the world. In other words, it was part of God's plan before creation to allow his own son to come and pay the price, because it was the only way it could be accomplished, that God would have a people to love, to serve, and to walk with him, willingly through their own choice. And at the same time, from before the foundation of the world, because God knows the end from the beginning, he's recorded in the Lamb's Book of Life, now, we've got this comment here, whose names are not written in the book of life, the book of life of the Lamb. And some argue, therefore, it's not fair that God chooses those who are to be saved, because there's an implication here that that's the case. If God's already written in this book the names of those who are going to be saved, well, what about other people? Isn't that unfair? It's kind of an age-old argument about predestination and free will. Has God already decided those who are going to go to heaven and spend eternity with him? And decided those who are not? And does it mean therefore that we don't actually have that, that freedom to choose? Do God predestinate us? Or do we choose? Which one? Well it's both. How can it be both? Well, it's quite simple. Because if you accept Jesus, you'll discover that your name was written in that book from the foundation of the world. If, on the other hand, you choose to reject Jesus, you'll discover that your name was not written in that book. You see, we have the choice, every one of us, whether we choose to accept Jesus Christ or not. Nobody, in fact, somebody at the conference, we were talking the other day, and somebody made the comment, and they said, I don't believe anybody will be in hell with a sense of injustice. And I thought that was quite an interesting insight. Nobody will be there thinking, this isn't fair. Everybody that spends eternity separated from God will realize that it was their choice. You see, the Bible makes it clear that Jesus, when he died on the cross, died for the sins of the whole world. The price has been paid. In a sense, poor analogy, but it's like the ticket has been bought for you. But unless you go and collect it, it means nothing. The price has been paid. Nobody will go to hell because of their sin. Because the price of sin has been paid for. People will go to hell because they have refused to accept the only remedy for that problem. It's like somebody discovering a a cure for cancer and then making it freely available. There will be no need for anybody to die from cancer from then on. If somebody died from cancer from that point on, it would be their own decision because they'd rejected the one cure. Well, Jesus is the, the cure from a disease that's far greater than cancer. Cancer kills a lot of people, it's true. But sin kills everybody. We all die because of sin. Sin, the consequences of sin, we're told in the book of Genesis, will be death. Sin kills everybody. The question is whether your sin is paid for. If it's paid for by Jesus Christ, your name will be written in that book. 
And it was written there from before the foundation of the world because God knew in advance that you would make that choice. If you choose not to make that choice, your name is not in that book. Verse 10 carries on. He that leads into captivity shall go into captivity. He that kills with a sword must be killed with a sword. Here is the patience and the faith of the saints. Verse 11 carries on. And I beheld another beast coming up out of the earth and he had two horns like a lamb and he spoke as a dragon. So now this second character comes onto the scene. Introduces this kind of second beast. Two is the number of witness or testimony. The idea of being like a lamb. He's coming to deceive by appearing to be like the true lamb of God. Seems to be the idea. But when he opens his mouth, we're no longer in any doubt where he's coming from. Again, full of blasphemy we see. And he exercises all the power of the first beast before him. And causes the earth and them which dwell therein and by the way, in the Greek, the impl- implication of that is that those who have chosen to dwell therein, to worship the first beast whose deadly wound was healed. See, he's going to play on the fact that Antichrist has had this some sort of head wound, has miraculously recovered from it, and this other individual is going to step onto the world scene. It may well be somebody that the world already knows. It may well be one of the religious leaders that are prominent today that will take on this mantle and then will cause everybody to effectively turn away from their own religions and beliefs and turn to worship Antichrist. This will be his mandate, his mission. And so now effectively completing this satanic trinity. In Revelation 19, verse 20 and a few other places, this individual is referred to as the false prophet. And we're told he does great wonders so that he makes fire come down from heaven on the earth in the sight of men. Now, we saw back in chapter 11 that seemingly if it is Moses and Elijah but whoever those two witnesses are one of the things they could do is cause fire to come down from heaven but if you remember when Moses went before Pharaoh in Egypt Moses performed various signs and wonders and the Egyptian magicians did the same thing trying to replicate seemingly now this is going on again that this individual is trying to try and say look don't worry about those two people that you know yeah I know they did those miracles but look I can do the same thing So he's trying to undo the things that they've done. And verse 14 says, and deceives them that dwell on the earth. Again, deceives those those that have chosen to dwell on the earth, chosen to make the earth their home. By the means of those miracles which he had power to do in the sight of the beast, saying to them that dwell on the earth that they should make an image to the beast which had the wound by a sword and did live. A little bit more description about how this wound is caused. I wonder... Possibly. I mean, Islam often use swords, don't they? Could it be a disgruntled Muslim that attacks this individual? Just thoughts. But whatever happens, as I said, that individual, this, this antichrist is going to have this near death or seemingly dead experiences we brought back to life. But then the, this, this false prophet is going to cause his image of him to be set up. And it's kind of got real rings back to Daniel chapter 3 where after receiving that, that dream, that vision, in chapter 2, Nebuchadnezzar in the very next chapter decides to make a golden image. Not just the head of gold, but the whole thing of gold. And tries to get everybody to worship. Do you remember the account? Do you remember on that occasion there's three Jewish young men who refuse to bow down? This, this, this statue that's 90 feet tall, 9 feet wide. Made of solid gold. You can imagine it out on the plains of Iraq, just, out, just outside of Babylon glistening in the sunshine and when the band played everybody was to fall down and worship this thing but these three Jews Hananiah, Azariah and Mishael to give them their Hebrew names didn't bow down and so they're thrown into the, the fire and they don't burn and Nebuchadnezzar looks in and happens to notice that there's four of them and one of them looks like as it says in the text looks like the son of God and so he calls to them and asks them to come out and then Nebuchadnezzar seemingly repents and says, no, from now on, people are only going to be able to worship the God of Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, Hananiah, Azariah, and Mishael. Interesting aside, by the way, for that account, where's Daniel? Daniel's not mentioned. Now, the suggestion is, the Jewish guys are representing Israel, who are protected during the time of the tribulation, when this image will be set up in the temple. Daniel, seemingly, is a type of the church. There are three individuals, if you like, in scripture that are referred to as beloved. They're all ones to whom God reveals secrets. John is one of them. 
And it's John, of course, that's getting this revelation. Daniel is another one, and the church is another. All of whom the Lord has revealed these secrets. So seemingly, maybe Daniel is a type of the church who was, for whatever reason, not present at that time. He was taken out of the way. Maybe out of the country on affairs of state or whatever at the time in Babylon, but for whatever reason, he wasn't there. Just as the church won't be here to go through these things. Now, just a, another picture to try and help clarify. During the first three and a half year period, we're going to have this one world religion which is going to embrace everything. We'll talk a lot about that in chapter 17 and 18 and how that's going to work. Just as the woman in chapter 12 had this clothing, this protection of the nation of Israel, so I believe that this woman, this mysterious harlot, as is explained in chapter 17, will also have this clothing. And we'll talk a lot about that when we get there. But because the governments of the world are going to get so fed up with this religious organization dictating and demanding what's going to happen and how it's going to happen, this religious system is totally destroyed. And it will then lead the way into, effectively, everybody worshipping Antichrist with the ten kings come to power for this period of time. Verse 15, speaking again of the false prophet, talking about this image that's put into the temple. And he had power to give life unto the image of the beast. So literally they're going to make a statue. It's going to be put into the Holy of Holies in the Jewish temple on Jerusalem. I noticed at the school there we've got on the back wall a picture of Jerusalem. You've got a picture of the temple mount there. That's where a temple is going to be built. Very soon. The Jews are getting ready. I've already got, I went out there in 2007, they've done so much since then, of getting all the materials, the clothing for the priest, all the utensils, they've got the table of showbread where they put the loaves of bread, one for each tribe, and the altars, and all these things they've got built, they've got ready, the, the big menorah, the big seven branch candlestick is on a lampstand. It's all ready. So when the temple's rebuilt, in a, an act which is going to repeat history, because I'm not sure if you remember in history, what led to the Jewish feast of Hanukkah was this individual called Antiochus Epiphanes, who was uh, very much anti the Jews, ends up sacrificing a pig on the altar in their temple and then puts his own image in place. Now they overcame him on that occasion, but we're going to see a rerun of that event here. An antichrist is going to allow this image to be put into the temple and the false prophet here, let me read again, and he had no, he had power to give life unto the image of the beast and the image of the beast should speak, so that the image of the beast should both speak and cause that as many as would not worship the image of the beast should be killed. So this has become false worship now. A lot of people kind of step into this thinking it's fun and suddenly they find they're trapped. That's how Satan does things. As I said, we put into the newly built temple. These miracles, again, intended to deceive the whole world. And these things, they'll be broadcast on Sky News, CNN, BBC News 24, all of these, these, these worldwide media stations that we have. You know, how is it that the world would know about all of these things taking place? Well, it's only in the times in which we live that these things have become possible. In 2 Thessalonians chapter 2, verse 3 and 4, it says, Let no man deceive you by any means, for that day... Speaking of us being, speaking of the day that is going to come, rather, the, the time of tribulation, shall not come, except there come a falling away, or possibly a catching away. That may be a reference to the rapture. We could look at another time. That will come first, but then the man of sin shall be revealed, the son of perdition, who opposes and exalts himself above all that is called God, all that is worshipped, so that he, as God, sits in the temple of God, showing himself that he is God. This is the audacity of this individual. And in verse 16, another very familiar passage. I'm sure you've heard this many times. And he causes all, both small and great, rich and poor, free and bond, to receive a mark in their right hand or in their foreheads. That no man might buy or sell, save he that had the mark or the name of the beast or the number of his name. Now it seems to be some sort of symbol of allegiance. We've got the mark, the name of the beast, or the number of his name. You have to take one of those identifying things, or there won't be any way for you to buy and sell. There'll be no way for you to trade, no way for you to get water and supplies and everything that you need. Now, of course, a lot of people have speculated when credit cards and so on came in, people said that this was going to be the thing, and then people started looking at barcodes and suggesting these three elongated strips and a barcode represented 666 and so on, and this has something to do with it all, and... 
Then we have microchips that, of course, can be placed in individuals and people said that this is going to be the mark of the beast and that when they burst, they can cause cancerous type problems on the skin. Well, I don't know. We'll see. But what we do know is that it's a mark of loyalty and I think this is probably more significant. That is a way of being identified with this individual. And why the right hand of the forehead? Well, there's an allusion in the Old Testament in Zechariah to this wound that Antichrist receives that affects his hand and his, his eye. So it might simply be something along with those lines. But they're all personally associated. You know, it's his mark, it's his name, his mark again, all these references you're looking at there. It's the mark of the beast. It's, it's something to do with him. People will be deceived into taking this. And again, it will be something that's necessary for buying or selling. And that's why there are many people that still think that it will be some sort of microchip that's implanted. And of course, I mean, look, we all recognise that there's, there's problems with credit cards, you know, apart from the obvious. But, you know, or, or bank cards and so on, because you can lose a card. You know, if you put a microchip in your hand or your head, you'll agree it's not, you, you do not like to lose your hand or your head. You know, you, you don't misplace it. So it's a lot easier in that sense. It's very hard from a fraud point of view. People can do all sorts of things, kind of cloning credit cards. It's not so easy to clone your head. You know, so there may be a lot behind the suggestions that there will be some sort of electronic uh, chip or something that will allow the buying or selling. It would certainly make a lot of sense of those things. And look, most of us will probably go, well, that's a good idea. I mean, for people now that are using contactless cards, I mean, it totally devalues money without even realising it. But it's so much easier, isn't it, if you've ever tried using it, for those that have, rather than just typing your PIN number in and trying to shield it, you know, all of a sudden just click, done, off, off you go. Wouldn't it be easier if you could just go and scan your hand and off you go? So a lot of these things that are written in Scripture, you read them initially and they may seem strange, they may seem odd, but actually when we get there, and I say when we, I'm not going to be here, I hope you're not, but for those that are, they're just going to be sensible suggestions that people are going to go along with. But of course, behind all of this is something very dark and sinister. The devil, as I've said already, is intent on destroying mankind. Remember what the name Satan means. It means opponent. Not God's opponent, he's our opponent, mankind's opponent. Well, I choose to stand behind Jesus Christ. So before Satan can come to me, he has to go to Jesus, and Jesus has already defeated him. Verse 18, to conclude, just says, Here is wisdom, let him that has understanding count the number of the beast, for it's the number of a man. And his number is six hundred, three score and six. So here we have the, the famous, infamous 666. Six is the number of man. And it's interesting, a number of times we find in Scripture these things. Now, Goliath, for example, are kind of, in many ways, and for another time, are very much a type of Satan. He was six cubits high. He had his... his Spear weighed six shekels. He had six pieces of armor. Nebuchadnezzar, that image that he erected, if you use the measurements given in scripture, it was 60 cubits high, six cubits wide. There were six instruments that were mentioned that were used. Solomon, interestingly enough, is the only other time this number appears in scripture. And it was to do with his salary. And there's lots of suggestions about how that may be linked. But the, the traditional what some people call the Star of David, was actually referred to originally as the Seal of Solomon. It was an occultic symbol. There's lots of things that you can, if you want to go on kind of little tangent studies and dig into some of these things. And people have suggested, therefore, that we can work out the, the name of this individual because Greek characters, as Hebrew characters do, also have a numerical value. So people have suggested that this could be all sorts of people through history. Look, I think the important thing to mention is that the Bible tells us that he won't be revealed until after the church is taken out of the way. So we can speculate and guess and so on, but I don't think we're going to know who it is. But at that time, I think it will become abundantly clear who he is. The reality is, though, for all of us, that I pray that you're not here for this. You know, People sometimes talk about those that believe in the rapture and these things we've been discussing. There's kind of escapist. I know somebody went up to, to Joe Foch, pastor of Calvary Chapel in Philadelphia in America, and just said, oh, the problem with you, he said, you've got an escapist mentality. And as Joe said, he said, I'm glad they got that right. I mean, who would want to stay for these things? 
I mean, there's going to be so much deception. And one of the biggest lies is to think that you could overcome that deception. The reason deception works is because it's subtle. Because it's close to things that we would accept and, and believe without questioning. You don't make a forged nine pound note. Satan is going to use very, very subtle things to bring these things to pass. But ultimately, the conclusion for this chapter is that there are two individuals that will come onto the world scene that will cause everybody ultimately to worship Satan. And anybody that takes this, this identifying mark, they have immediately blown their opportunity of an eternity with God. Because as we'll see later, God has reserved that place for his name. Let's bow our hearts. Father, as we just ponder these things this morning, as we consider these verses, help us to understand not just the the details of how they fit together, but Lord, the implications to us right now. Lord, the most important thing in this chapter is the statement that those who are saved have already their names written in the Lamb's book of life. And Father, I pray that be true for every one of us here this morning. Lord, everyone that would listen to this audio later on, that Father, we would be a people who are not deceived. But Lord, recognize that Satan is out to ruin our lives, to mess our lives up, to destroy in any way he can, and this will be his ultimate attempt to destroy mankind. So Father, we thank you that you have by your grace given us these warnings in advance. But Lord, these warnings are not just there that we may have the information, but the Lord, we might act upon it. So Father, help us also to share with others the wonderful work that you have done in coming and dying and redeeming us, saving us, and giving us a a wonderful hope and a, a future. That, Lord, we don't have to be fearful of these things. We don't have to walk around being worried. But, Lord, we've got something to rejoice about. That we have an eternity that is secure in Jesus. We just thank you for these things now. Impress them upon our hearts. We ask in Jesus' name. Amen.